My name is Macon Holtz, and welcome to this end-of-year ARC Audio content bonanza. On this podcast, you will hear a recording of an event we held back in August to celebrate the release of the English translation of Johanna Biller's novel Elastic from Lolly Editions. You'll hear readings from both the Danish and English versions of the novel, and a conversation between the author and her translator, Sherry Helberg. Enjoy! Uh, to this, um, what is hopefully the first in a series of translation events at Artbooks, where we are delighted to um, be marking the release of the new English translation of the of Johanna Billy's uh, novel uh, Elastic, or Elastic as it is in English. Such wildly different languages. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the novel is a, the tale of a, um, well, coming to terms with one's own body within the within the perplexing relationships that happen between female friends and more than that, but then also the normative structures that... But something, it seems, it seems complicated, yeah. And, and we're thrilled to have um, this new translation by uh, Sherry Helberg and uh, this publication from uh, Lolly Editions. And I'm going to let uh, Johanna and Sherry talk from now on. So, also, uh, last thing I should say... Sorry. Um, <laughs> special discounts in that tonight. So if you want to buy a copy of the translation, it's only 100 kroner. So, uh, signed. And signed. It's going to be signed. <laughs> so, <laughs> so without further ado, a little round of applause and we'll start going. Thank you. We're going to start with the, with the reading. You had yeah. We'll read first. <laughs> yeah, and I will read from the original in Danish. And some of you will understand it, and some of you will not. <laughs> but I'll try to do it in a cheerful way anyways. <clears throat> I'm going to read the first page, and then we are going to jump into the book. Um, yeah. Jeg sidder i skrædderstilling i badet og i agtar mine kønslæber. Trækker dem fra hinanden, så klitoris kommer til syne, og det er som at kigge på en anden end mig selv. Som om jeg bør spørge om lov, før jeg må røre. Jeg opgiver at barbere mig, at der er for mange folder dernede, og jeg kan ikke lide folderne. Alle disse folder er en forbandelse, og jeg har svært ved at forholde mig til dem og til at have et hul, der kan udfyldes af en penis. Jeg bryder mig ikke om det rosa kødgardin, der skal trækkes til side inden. Jeg drømmer om at være mandig, jeg drømmer om at omgås kvinder og være det modsatte af dem. At min stemme er mørk og fast på den der måde, der gør alle ord vigtige. I dag synes jeg, kusser er grimme. De fleste kvinder, jeg kender, vækker en følelse af afmagt i mig, kombineret med en mild grad af ubehag. Nogle aftener nyder jeg visse kvinders selskab, disse udvalgte kvinder, som jeg har valgt at beholde i mit liv, fordi jeg kan lide deres måde at tømme en øl på, eller hvordan de suger på cigaretten og skodder med en dårlig ligegyldighed. Når de skodder og oser cigaretten længe i askebæret, det er som om de mangler at gøre det sidste, der afslutter cigarettens liv. Så ligger den der og oser med et udtværet læbestiftsmærke på det orange filter. For det meste kvæler jeg den. Helt stilfærdigt fisker jeg skodet op af asken og maser ind til røgen forsvinder og et lille rødt mærke fra læbestiften efterlades på mit fingerspids. Det føles privat at gøre det, som at være alene hjemme hos nogen, man ikke rigtig kender, og derfor venter jeg til, at hun distraheres. At skifte i musikken, en ny gæsts ankomst. En enkelt gang afslørede en af disse kvinder mig, og hun afbrød bredt sin talestrøm og spurgte, hvorfor gjorde du det? 
og jeg kunne ikke svare hende. Jeg havde svært ved at forklare min handling, at røgen for skåret generede. Jeg har det svært med kvinder, og også derfor chokerer forelskelsen i Mathilde mig. Det er en forelskelse, der med ét kontrollerer min hverdag. Jeg slukker telefonen om aftenen for at få fred, for ikke at tjekke, om hun har skrevet eller svaret eller online, men jeg tænder den snart igen. Det er begyndt med aftenerne, men hun tager mine netter. Hun skriver klokken tre en nat, og jeg vågner og svarer. Så skriver hun næste nat på samme tidspunkt, og jeg vågner og svarer igen. Så vågner jeg klokken tre af mig selv, ser forventningsfuldt på telefonen, indtil det lille røde hjerte dukker op i en besked. En smile med kyssemund. Et godnat. Jeg har det især svært med kvinder, der kalder sig mine veninder. Jeg lærte venindeskabet at kende i min folkeskoletid. Det var der ubehaget ved venindeskaber begyndte. Jeg husker, hvordan jeg løb på rulleskøjter med Laura. Vi løb på rulleskøjter hver dag på parkeringspladsen den sommerferie inden 6. klasse. Der var en asfalteret rampe for enden af parkeringspladsen, og den var ikke bygget til rulleskøjteløb, men den var god til det alligevel. Vi styrtede ned ad rampen med flagrende flætninger, og med spændte lår kæmpede vi os op ad den igen. Og det var det hele værd. Det var krampen værd. Eller så glide ned ad rampen og mærke vinden i håret. Følelsen af at flyve. Sådan gik vores eftermiddag med at stavre op og køre ned, og det var det, vi lavede den sommer. Vi snakkede også med hinanden, men jeg husker ikke vores samtaler, og det har nok været børns samtaler om asfalten og knæbeskytterne. Hvordan de mas korbejbukserne fast til knæene, så huden var krøllet og rød om aftenen. Vores forældre forlangte, at vi brugte knæbeskytter, og det føltes som en rimelig pris at betale for disse lykkelige dage på parkeringspladsen. Da skolen startede igen, inviterede Nicoline og Laura hjem til sig, og de købte den samme grønne trøje fra Nørregård på strøget. Sådan sad de som to grønne lyssignaler ved siden af hinanden i klasseværelset, da jeg trådte ind ad døren med rulleskøjterne bundet til skoletasken. Laura behøvede ikke sige noget. De ens trøjer sagde ligesom det hele. Syvende klasse var domineret af venindehalskæder. Et hjerte i sølv, som blev knækket midt over, og de halve hjerter blev sat i tynde kæder. Man bar dem om halsen under trøjen. Det halve hjerte mod den varme barnehud. På den måde hørte man til nogen. Man havde en bedste veninde, og det var det halve hjerte i kæden et bevis på. Hvem har den anden halvdel, spurgte vi hinanden, hvem er din bedste veninde? Jeg fik ingen venindehalskæde, for der var ingen, som tilbød mig deres anden halvdel. Og jeg havde ikke et halvt hjerte at give, for mine forældre syntes, det var unødvendigt at betale så meget for noget, der var en dille. Men det var ikke en dille, disse venindehalskæder, de handlede om overlevelse, om liv og død. Jeg kunne ikke forklare mine forældre det, men jeg kunne samtidig ikke lade, som om halskæderne ikke betød noget. Nicoline og Laura købte dem hos gudsmøden ved siden af skolen, og jeg kan huske, hvordan Nicoline på dramatisk vis rev sin kæde af halsen og kastede den mod Laura. Du er den værste veninde i verden, råbte hun, og Laura gik grædende hjem fra skole med sin del af sølvhjertet, brændende mod brystbenet. Jeg troede det efter, at venindehalskæderne var slut med venindeproblemerne, men det viste sig, at problemerne med venindeskab først lige var begyndt. Voksne veninders forhold til hinanden er usynlige, og afsløres kun af indforstået blikke og overbærenhed over, hvem der gav kaffe sidst, og hvem der giver næste gang. Et venindeskab er som et stilas. Alle ved, at stilaser er midlertidige, men nødvendige, hvis man vil restaurere facaden på et hus. Der er ikke nogen, der beholder et stilas i længden, uanset hvor godt et stilas, der er tale om. 
Stilaser bliver pillet ned, og venindeskaber pilles fra hinanden. Nogle holder længe, og overlever et par blæsende søndage, vindstød og stormstyrke. Andre pilles ned lige så hurtigt, som de blev sat op. Af Mathilde, min veninde, har jeg forelsket i hende. And now we're gonna take a quick trip to Slovenia, <laughs> where Alice, the narrator, is for a short period of time. Jeg er en fremmed i denne by, og min fremmedhed spejles i vandpytterne, floden, bibliotekets blanke vinduer. Det er nybygget biblioteket. Ligesom mig passer det ikke til resten af byen. Det var en besværlig proces at indhente tilladelse til at bygge det. Der var ikke opbakning til projektet, for indbyggerne i Skofia Loka holdt af det gamle bibliotek og det slidte charme, og de protesterede mod det nye. En lille gruppe indbyggere med papskilte og fløjter demonstrerede på torvet en tidlig fredag morgen. Men protesterne nyttede ikke noget. Byggeprojektet blev godkendt, og nu står det nye bibliotek der med sine rette vinkler og lige vægge, og det er skruen uden ende, siger Zika. Moderniteten er flyttet ind, og den flytter ikke ud igen. Han sukker og sætter en flad hånd på betonmuren, som kan han opløse den sådan. Den nye bro af beton og stålvejere deler floden foran os. Og på den anden side af broen ligger den nye park med en lille pavillon i midten, hvor det var meningen, at der skulle afholdes små intime koncerter på lune sommeraftener. Der var vist en enkelt, sommer, en enkelt aften sidste sommer, hvor et band kom og spillede slovenske evergreens, siger Ziga. Jeg går ned ad gågaden med computertasken over den ene skulder, og min lille håndtaske balancerende over den anden. Tomasserne kigger alle på mig, for det er det fremmedlægende. De stiger med øjne, der ikke er uvenlige, men heller ikke i mødekommende. Jeg mærker deres blikke på kroppen som flåter, der kravler ind i min varme armhuler og bider sig fast med kriblende ben. Så sidder de der og suger. Suger den fremmedes blod. Det skaber en afstand mellem dem og mig, at de næsten alle hedder Thomas. Jeg har svært ved at skælne dem fra hinanden. For mig er de alle ens, som æbler af forskellige sort, først og fremmest bare æbler. <coughs> Når man tænker på æbler, er det lige meget, hvilken sort man tænker på, om det er koks orange eller Ingrid Marie eller Pink Lady. Det er først, når man står i grønthandleren foran bunkerne af runde frugter, at man kommer i tanke om, at æbler er forskellige. En af Tomasserne er komponist. Han bliver inspireret og forsvinder i flere dage, for så at dukke op igen med røde øjne og indsunkne kinder. Imens har de andre Tomasser drukket espresso af store hvide kopper og røget pakke efter pakke af Marlboro Light. De rykker deres stole efter solen og misser med øjnene mod dem. De har siddet sådan i mange år. Jeg ved det, for huden omkring deres øjne er rynket af denne nærmeste kroniske missen med øjnene. Skål. Nå for det, det er I sit cross-legged in the shower and look at my vagina. I stretch my lips apart to see my clitoris, and it's like looking at someone else like I'm supposed to ask for permission before I touch it. I give up on shaving. There are too many folds down there, and I don't like the folds. They're a curse, and I don't know how I'm supposed to feel about them, or about the fact that I have a hole a penis can fill. I hate these pink curtains of flesh that have to be pulled aside first. I dream of being manly. I dream that in the company of women, I'm unlike them. 
I dream that my voice is hard and dark, that all my words sound important. Today, I think cunts are ugly. Most women I know provoke a sense of powerlessness in me, combined with a mild discomfort. Sometimes, especially at night, I enjoy the company of certain women, select women, women I've decided to keep in my life because I like the way they empty a beer, or the way they puff on their cigarette and casually step it out with a lazy, indifferent movement of their hand. The cigarette smolders in the ashtray as though they've neglected to properly finish its life. It just lies there glowing with smudged lipstick on the orange filter. Usually, I smother it. Calmly, I fish the butt up out of the ashtray and crush it until the smoke disappears. I notice a little smudge of red from the lipstick on the tip of my finger. It feels intimate, like being alone in the house of someone you don't really know. I wait until she gets distracted by something, a change in the music, or someone coming through the door. Once, one of them caught me in the act. She abruptly stopped talking and asked, why did you do that? I couldn't give her an answer. I couldn't explain my behavior, why the smoke bothered me. I have a hard time with women, which is another reason why my feelings for Matilda catch me by surprise. Suddenly she's taken over my life. I turn off my phone in the evening to keep myself from constantly checking whether she's written or responded or is online, but I turn it back on minutes later. It starts with the evenings, but soon she takes my nights too. One night, she sends me a message at 3 in the morning, and I wake up and respond. She sends me a message at the same time the next night, and I wake up and respond again. The following night, I wake up at 3 in the morning on my own, staring expectantly at my phone until a little red heart pops up. An emoji blowing a kiss. Good night. I have an especially hard time with women who call themselves my girlfriends. I had my first encounter with female friendship in primary school. That was when the discomfort started. I remember going rollerblading with Laura. We would go rollerblading every day in the car park the summer before year six. There was an asphalt ramp at one end, and it wasn't meant for rollerblades, but it was perfect. We flew down the ramp with our plates flapping in the air, and with our cramped thighs, and with cramped thighs, we fought our way back up again. It was worth it. The rush of letting ourselves slide down the ramp with wind in our hair was worth the pain. The feeling of flying. We spent that summer tottering up and riding down entire afternoons. We also talked a lot, but I can't remember any of our conversations. They were probably just the kind of conversations kids have about asphalt and knee pads, how they crumpled our jeans around the knees, leaving our skin wrinkled and red. Our parents insisted that we wear knee pads. It felt like a fair price to pay in exchange for all of those happy days in the car park. When school started again, Nicolina invited Laura over to her house, and then they bought the same green top from Norgo Postroil. They were sitting next to each other like two green street lights when I walked into the classroom with my rollerblades tied to my rucksack. Laura didn't have to say anything. The matching top said it all. Year seven was all about friendship necklaces, a silver heart broken in half. You were supposed to wear it around your neck under your top, a half heart against warm kid's skin. It meant that you belonged to someone, that you had a best friend. The half heart on the chain was proof. Who has the other half, we would ask each other. Who's your best friend? I didn't have a friendship necklace because nobody gave me their other half, and I didn't have a half heart to give anyone because my parents thought it was ridiculous to spend so much money on what was clearly just a trend. But it wasn't just a trend. Those friendship necklaces were life or death. They determined your survival. I couldn't convince my parents, but I also couldn't let on that I cared. Nicolina and Laura bought theirs at the jewelry shop next to school. 
I remember Nicolina dramatically ripping the chain off her neck and throwing it at Laura. You're the worst friend in the world, she screamed. Laura walked home from school in tears, with her half-silver heart burning against her breastbone. I thought that we were finished with girl problems after those friendship necklaces, but apparently my problems with girlfriends were only just beginning. Friendship between women is, for the most part, invisible, and is only revealed in furtive glances and demonstrated leniency about who paid for the last coffee and who will pay for rent. Friendship between women is like scaffolding. Everyone knows scaffolding is temporary, but necessary if you want to restore the facade of a house. But nobody keeps, no one keeps scaffolding up indefinitely, no matter how solid it seems. All scaffolding gets taken down, and female friendships get taken down too. Some hold out for a while and make it through a few windy, windy Sundays, hurricane-strength gusts. Others are taken down as quickly as they were put up. Is Matilda my girlfriend if I'm in love with her? I'm a foreigner in this city, and my foreignness is reflected back at me in the puddles, the river, the polished windows of the library. The library is new, and like me, it doesn't fit in with the rest of the city. It was difficult to obtain planning permission to build it. There wasn't much public support for the project because the residents of Skofia Loka were fond of the old library with its worn-down charm and weren't interested in having it replaced by a new building. A small group of townspeople with cardboard signs and whistles assembled in the city square early one Friday morning. But the protest was useless. The building project was approved, and now there's a new library with clean lines and straight walls. And it never ends, Ziga says. Modernity has arrived, and it's here to stay. He takes a deep breath and places his open hand on the concrete wall, as if he's trying to dissolve it. A new concrete bridge with steel wires runs across the river in front of us, and on the other side of the bridge, there's a new park with a little gazebo in the center, where there were supposed to be nice little concerts on warm summer nights. Apparently, there was only one concert last summer. A band played some Slovenian classics, Ziga says. I walk down the pedestrian street with my laptop bag hanging on one shoulder and my shoulder bag balanced on the other. All of the Tomazas stare at me, at the foreign body. They stare with eyes that aren't exactly unfriendly, but they aren't welcoming either. I can feel their gaze on my body, like ticks crawling into my warm armpits and sinking their crawling legs into my skin, sucking on the foreign body. There's a wall between us, maybe because they're almost all named Tomas and I'm not. I can't tell them apart. For me, they're all the same, in the way that different varieties of apples are always just apples at the end of the day. When you think about an apple, it's not like you have a glass <coughs> orange or Ingrid Marie or pink lady in mind. It's only when you're at the green grocers, stare, standing in front of piles of round fruits, that you start to think about the fact that there are different varieties. One Tomas is a composer. He gets struck by waves of inspiration and disappears for days, then reappears with red eyes and hollow cheeks. In the meantime, the other Tomazes drink espresso out of big white cups and smoke pack after pack of Marlboro Lights. They pull their chairs towards the sunlight, squinting. They've been doing it for years. I can tell by the skin around their eyes, wrinkles from chronic squinting. Wow, but I should write that, but I did. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> it sounds so tough in English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
Yeah, it's, sorry. It's, but anyway, yeah, you should t- yeah talk about that. Because I think <laughs> no, I don't want to talk about that. The, <laughs> the flavors become something totally yeah, different yeah, in tone, does. and I think we talked about like the um, the kamas a lot <laughs> because in the Danish you use the the Danish kama. Yeah, okay, yeah. You uh, yeah. the first thing you said to me when we met for the very first time, Sherry said, "Hi, I'm Sherry." This is such a frustrating book. <laughs> nice to meet you too. <laughs> um, yeah, because the commerce is quite different, and I think you found like the perfect solution for that. But 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 what I also meant was that when getting a book translated into another language also means that you can kind of read it like a novel you didn't write by yourself. If yeah. that makes sense, <laughs> I think that's the closest you get to reading your own words without mm. noticing them, and. It's funny because when I read this translation, I was reminded of this feeling I had when I first read, uh, wrote Elastic. And I felt kind of ashamed. <laughs> I felt ashamed about this uh, unappealing, narcissistic, not very likable female voice. And I somehow find myself feeling kind of ashamed again. <laughs> um, but that's maybe the whole point of this book. <laughs> but I think I, there's something that is really identifiable about yeah. her. Um, so I, yeah, I mean, I guess she, like, there, there's one part in the novel where she talks about how she doesn't like, um, like, the white part of the orange, and, like, she doesn't like anything that's good for her, and it's sort of, like, I think she feels a lot of this sort of, about her, this sort of shame about herself and, like, the way she she is, too, but I think there's so much in that that's, I don't know, I at least feel like I really could identify with. Um, yeah, yeah I, I feel like it's kind of laying all on the table. I mean, the way I, I actually wrote it was that I had this idea that my second novel was was supposed to be this very serious one about climate change, because that's what serious <laughs> writers write about these days. <laughs> and it was, um, yeah, I think that was kind of a bad idea. Um, but this... Uh, female voice kind of insisted on coming through my words and I was so annoyed by her she kept shouting and disliking the white stuff in oranges and so on and I and I, I felt like this is a voice you can't write right you know it can't exist because it's um it's the opposite and it's the opposite of you what you would like to be I mean and um then I started like taking all these parts with this crazy little girl voice out of the document. And then um, the climate change book wasn't going that well. But (laughs) the the other document kind of just like, the pages just popped up there, you know? And all of a sudden, Elastic was there. And and more important, Alice's voice was finally there. And I'm kind of happy for her now (laughs) that she exists. But I'm thinking about um, this this feeling of shame because I think one of the the emotions that I felt so much reading this was this feeling of discomfort, mm. um, and this this feeling right from the first page of being uncomfortable in one's own skin um, in relation to both her gender but also to her sexual identity. Um, and in translating the novel, I thought a lot about how this gender trouble, if you will. Mm. Um, comes through at the level of language. And I wanted to ask about, yeah, in your writing process, how you... Um, I think when when you're first beginning to see this gender bias or this gendered language, then that's all you see. And in the end, Alice reigns about gender in a kind of angry way, you might say. And I think she's saying, I don't know what it is in the English version, but she's saying something like, um, even the language changes too, splitting into oppositions. Um, and that's 
you need to... I was frustrated about that. But then I decided to actually just confront it, which I think is what I'm doing on the first page, where Alice is saying she's dreaming about being manly. Um, that's kind of talking into this language that men and women are not the same. Yeah. And I think it's... Um, that was the way for me writing about this topic mm-hmm. was actually confronting it and also using the language against itself somehow um, and using the words in a different kind of way. I remember you saying too that because I, I asked about, I think when I was thinking about using the word manly, I was like, I don't know, it doesn't, it mm. feels, there's something kind of funny about using this word manly. And I remember yeah. you said that, like, oh, it's the same in, in English. Like, it's, yeah, I, yeah, I couldn't it's, come up with anything, like, there, this was the word. Yeah, and, and I felt the same way too. I, I like the words, but, but I think manly is, um, it's kind of a strange word. Um, <laughs> but I, I also think it's, for Alice, the important part is that it's not being female or feminine. That's mm-hmm. the important part. And Alice lacks words as well. Yeah. Throughout the book, actually. Mm-hmm. You know, even she, she needs a word for her relationship with Matilda, whom she's madly in love with, but she's also friends with somehow. And, and that's why she's exploring this word, <coughs> which was also a discussion we had. How do you translate the word for relationships between women that are not romantic? And uh, you don't have a word in English that means menina. No, I mean, there's like, I think we, we talked about this, but in English, like, I think it's something like maybe my, my mom or more like my grandma would say like, oh, your girlfriend, are you going to hang out with your girlfriends? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's about as, as close yeah, as Yeah, and this is obviously yeah. not a novel about grandmas. You know, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, that's, and, and that's why you, you did it in a fine way, I think, but it's also kind of frustrating because this word menina is really like, I hate that word because it's somehow saying that the relationship between two women are lesser worth than the relationship between two men or men and women. And and that's what this book is also about. I think it's it's more about friendship than about bisexuality, for example. It's more about how women relate to each other and how they engage with each other, most of all, I think. Does that make sense? (laughs) Of course, yeah. Um, Yeah, and I guess just Going back to this line about uh, dreaming about being manly, um, I think another thing that that came up was this, um, I think in one of the earlier versions of the translation, this thought that it shouldn't come off as if Alice is trans or if she's, as, she's, as if she's say, com- contemplating a, some sort of operation or something like that, but it's, it's this like discomfort in the Maybe like you said, with more with femininity yeah. or something like that. And I thought that yeah, that could be interesting mm-hmm. to talk about just this distinction. Yeah, I, I think I think for Alice, it's it's not about dreaming of actually being a man. It's about dreaming of being able to behave more like a man, which is or more like a traditional man. That's important. <laughs> um, which is also why Alice is so drawn towards Matilda, because in many ways, Matilda acts like a man, if you can use that that phrase these days. Um, She's she's acting kind of traditional, mainly aggressive. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's why Alice is drawn to Matilda. And I think that's pretty much what her desire is about. Mm -hmm. Um, Sorry, I I didn't answer the question, did I? No, I think that makes perfect sense. And I think like about with the language too, there's this sense in which like there's something that's just not available to no. her like there 
like in terms of both language and also this sort of like bodily experience because yeah I mean she's situation. looking at herself and she's like what is this I mean yeah. <laughs> I don't understand this part of my body mm-hmm. and I and I think that's that's kind of the deal in elastic that Alice is um, caught in all these spaces in between I mean she can't really figure out how to be a woman she can't really figure out how to be a man and I think that's that's kind of the point because that's what it feels like to be a human being yeah. you know yes yeah. it's, it's all these uh, different um, stepping stones between things and people's expectations of you. Speaking of in between, this is like one of my favorite parts of the book. Um, that is this, so Elastic has these incredible metaphors in them. And I just, I love the way that it's like you combine, you, the metaphors kind of build on each other and sometimes they just like take a, a turn <laughs> in a way that you completely don't expect. Um, but there's one about being in between, um, which is from um, the beginning of the book. And Alice is actually talking about um, Alexander, who is Matilda's boyfriend, who she's also sleeping with his penis. Um, and she says, I like when it's somewhere between hard and soft, that place in between. Not because of the challenge a half erect penis can pose, but because it seems to be caught between two poles like a ripple moving across the surface of the ocean. Um, <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and then actually in the next paragraph, she's um, back at home in her apartment with her boyfriend who's reading the newspaper, and she's Googling ocean currents. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I think that like just about this this sort of question of looking for a language that maybe doesn't exist or a kind of vocabulary that doesn't exist. So the metaphors do a lot of work there and sort of filling the, I, the gaps. I think, I think it's, a, it's a really good point. I, I Actually, I didn't really think of it that way. Maybe my mind was just strange. But, but, but I think you're right. And what's also the way I do it or the way I see it is that the mind also works in this peculiar way where you connect stuff that doesn't really have anything to do with, you, with each other, you know? And that's also that, that this way of thinking. I really thought about getting that into elastic, and especially into Alice as a narrator, because it, that's also why the book is not chronological. It moves all around the place, and it uh, can be kind of confusing, um, because that's also how the mind works. I, I, it makes weird connections, and it's um, sometimes you forget something, sometimes you remember something differently. And um, so I think that's how this book works, <laughs> both regarding the metaphors, but also regarding the whole structure of it. And the, the setting plays a large role in that construction too, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's it does. Yeah, it, it really does. I, I'm very fascinated about placing characters in small spaces because they can't <laughs> move. <laughs> um, that sounds, yeah. <laughs> um, no, but it's... Um, the setting is important for me because it's kind of setting the scene. Um, and I like to think of Elastic as different scenes, almost like actors entering the stage. And that's what happens a lot in Elastic. They kind of say, now I'm here. And then they start communicating. Mm-hmm. And um, I just love the way it gives you the possibility to really focus on details because the setting is there and it's a small room. And then you can notice, I mean, a hand on a knee or a certain look or something like that. 
that's um, that's what a small setting does, I think. It's almost like it feels almost like a um, like a theater, like a set or something like that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's like it's like playing Sims. Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> Alice does a lot in elastic as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and there's the. Um, um, I just sorry, I lost my train of thought for no, a second. No, that's fine. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, I also about the construction of the novel. Mm-hmm. There are all of these um, blank pages. Yeah. So some of them have these little dots, um, and then some are just blank. Some are black towards the end. I think there's a black page. Um, and maybe it's revealing too much if you, if you no, say what, no, what they're all about. But. No, it's not. Um, I just wanted to write a long book now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and you can add in blank pages. <laughs> Call it avant-garde. No. <laughs> um, oh, that's not the point. <laughs> that, that's also about, I think, how the mind works. Sometimes you have blank pages inside your mind. Don't you know that feeling? You have, like, what, what happened the last two months? Or what happened yesterday, sometimes? Um, and also when you have when you're writing a book like Elastic where there's no there's not really a plot there's not a clear narrative um, you need to kind of help your reader somehow to understand that at least now we're in Slovenia and not in Copenhagen (laughs) and that's also what the blank pages are for it's like um, you know cut next scene Um, and I think I don't know if this is the best way to do it but it's it's a way. <laughs> Looking at it now, maybe I have placed them differently, I don't know. Um, but that's also what I actually li- like about Elastic, that you can also read the first page as if it were the last one. <laughs> and I think uh, that's part of it as well. Um, but it's also making the book quite confusing to read. <laughs> yeah, I think because also there's the set of three that comes towards the end, and um, there's something that reads as if it, it could be an ending right yeah. before. Yeah, and it I does. Think there's the, yeah, it's sort of an interesting jump then that yeah. happens after. Almost like an epilogue or something like that, or a little... Yeah, I think, I think so as well. It, it's almost like an essay in the end, which was more like a rain, actually. Um, <laughs> ref- <laughs> reflecting on, on all these issues, but it could also be the beginning of the book, as I see it. Um, <laughs> that depends on how you read it. Yeah. yeah, I mean, for me, I felt like there was a lot of sadness in the in the blank pages sometimes, especially at certain parts that you sort of like a, a long pause or where, where things yeah, or, sort of or sink maybe in. some emptiness or <laughs> yeah exactly or uh, exhaustion yeah. or something like that. It's mm-hmm. uh, yeah, but it's also time to breathe, I think, because it's an intense book and uh, it's important. <laughs> To like give your reader some rest sometimes, because Alice gets no rest at all, so it's, it's kind of important. Yeah, but I mean, it it is an intense book, but and there's all kinds of heartbreak in here and frustration, um, but it's also really funny, or at least I thought like there are certain parts of it that are really funny. I'm so happy you said that. Sometimes uh, when people read it in the Danish version, they would come up to me and said, like, is it okay to tell you that it's kind of funny? And I was like, yes, thank you, that's fine. <laughs> and, and I think it's, no one is actually nice and elastic. Everybody are behaving like idiots. Um, and that's, that's not a nice thing to write, and it's not a nice thing to read. Um, and that's where the humor comes in, I think, because... Humor is also, for me at least, a way of showing love towards people and towards your characters. I feel like if you if you can joke about your characters, then it's because you love them. 
and you need to love them. I mean, I spend so much time with these people. Um, <laughs> and that's what the humor is about, I, I think. Mm-hmm. And it's also kind of to not lighten the mood, that sounds mm-hmm. serious, but <laughs> at least we can laugh about it. Yeah. It, it, it makes it almost, um, how do you say it? it ridiculous sometimes you know you're like is it really this way you know to be a woman yeah and and is it this way to engage with other people you know it's it's also kind of funny yeah yeah um yeah i think that um yeah that i was wondering too about this or because the um there are some really important i think like social points points about norms and structures and that the humor kind of cuts through that in a certain way or it makes it I think it it does something or does some kind of work where it makes these points somehow resonate more yeah. um, I'm glad you think so yeah <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the point <laughs> and also I mean the part with the Tomases I, I read a bit of it out loud it when you're writing about a group of men in Slovenia it's extremely important not to sound racist <laughs> And I think it is. I mean, it, it was something I really thought about because it's it's not that's not the point. Of course, it's not the point. And I think the humor is also making, yeah, showing some affection towards them as well. Um, at least that was the point. Um, because it's not like a sarcastic humor. It's it's a kind humor. I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so too. Um, so you said that people didn't think the book was, or that in when it came out in Danish, not everyone thought it was. It was funny, and I was thinking about, um, I think you mentioned that um, there were also some women who didn't take too well yeah. to the novel when it came out in yeah, Danish. No wonder. <laughs> um, yeah, I, no, I think um, some women. Um, I remember this one female critic, and we've been to this long, long radio interview. It was one hour about gender and discrimination. And at the end, the interview was like... The interview was done, and everything was fine, and we were sitting next to to each other, and then she told me, she said, like, completely smiling, you know you're a traitor, right? And I was like, what? And she said, yeah, so many men talk bad about women, so women can't do it as well. (laughs) Yeah, exactly, and I was completely quiet as well. Um, And I think it's, that's kind of also why books with unappealing female characters are more important than ever. Because for me, it's not about who gets the biggest piece of the cake and who's like um, the most uh, honorable human being. It's about being human. And that's what Elastic, first of all, is about. That's also why it's not strange, but kind of sad that no male critics actually read it. Interesting. Yeah. And, uh, and that's, but that's also spot on. I mean, that's how it is, right? Um, so, if you know any male critics, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, well, I think we're getting close to to the end of of the yeah. time. Um, but um, yeah, I guess right along those lines, do you, do you consider Elastic a, a feminist novel? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is. Of course, it's a novel about being human, so that's why it's feminist. I, I think, at least, it is. And also, I think it it's also quite yeah of course it is because I hope hopefully this will make the readers reflect a bit more about gender and discrimination and so on and um, also I think the like 
Alice as a character is feministic in her own way because she's insisting on being unappealing and narcissistic and horrible. And that's also how it is to be a woman. Yeah, I and that man for that sake. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I found that just reading it and then translating it so much more that it really got under my skin in a way. I remember for like the, the months I was translating it, I had a lot of trouble like wearing dresses, <laughs> which is also something that Alice experiences when she's in Slovenia, that she yeah. just like only wears baggy jeans and baggy t-shirts, which is yeah. like basically, I didn't really think about it until now, but that was basically all I wore from <laughs> January to May because I, there was just like the way that it really got under my skin. And I think that yeah. like the novel really does have that potential just like yeah, make you feel kind of cringy about your, I don't know. Yeah. I feel like I'm supposed to be happy to hear that, but I'm not quite sure. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm going to dress Yeah, that's so good. I'm, good. I'm, I'm, good. I'm not quite that yet. Don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess it's time for a round of applause for both of you. Thanks for listening. For more ARC audio content, check out arcbooks.dk and why not drop by the store on Mulligan. <laughs>